0: The two witnesses. This is a great story. So I thought we'd start with a little um, object lesson. I'm going to need a few volunteers. Let me think how many I need. I need four volunteers. All right. Marissa? I know we're a small group. All right. I know I know your name, but remind me. Jim. Sorry, Jim. That's all right. All right. It's so, been a while since I've had a class. Yeah, it's been a while. All right, Marissa, you're here. Okay. In the light. Then you're Jim. All right, then I have Mikael. I need one more. One more on to it. Thank you, Leslie. All right. And you are God, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> the angel of the Lord, <laughs> and John the Revelator. Okay. Ooh, she was really nervous that she's going to be <laughs> Satan. <laughs> we don't even have a Satan in this little thing. So, if we, uh, if we turn in our uh, Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, so practically the title of the book, right shebang, right out of the gun. So, the opening of Revelation, it almost has two openings it has like a prophetic opening and then like a letter opening. So, the prophetic opening is the first three verses the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show what would soon take place, and he did so by sending his angel to servant John, who witnessed all these things and wrote them down. And then that's like one through three. And then starting in verse four, it's like, I, John, write to you, the seven churches of ages, grace and peace from the one who um, is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits born and stone, and from Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. That's very letterish. And the first one is more like prophetic. So what's interesting about the the prophecy version... I'm going to borrow your Bible, Leslie. For a second. So it starts off like this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show John what would take place. Wait a minute. But he did so by sending his angel... So we end up with this kind of chain of revelation, so to speak. That the revelation is of Jesus, or it's Jesus' revelation. A little hard to tell. Maybe both. A little double entendre there, where it's both Jesus' revelation in the sense that Jesus is the revealer, but it's also a revelation of Jesus. So Jesus is the one who's being revealed. We're, we're finding out something about Jesus that we didn't know from the Gospels. We're not going to find out about his birth or necessarily even his life and ministry on earth, but we find out about his kind of eternal ministry as he sits on the throne and his what we would call his eschatological ministry as he returns as judge. So that's, that's what we're finding out about. But it's definitely this chain of revelation, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants what would take place, John, and he did so by sending his angel to do it. Now then, John was going to share it with the church. I could have had the rest of you just clump up there, but that was a little unnecessary. So this is our chain of revelation. God, Jesus, angel, John. All right, thanks. All right, round of applause for our volunteers. So what's interesting about that chain of revelation that we get literally in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 is that as we read the narrative it kind of plays out that way so not in the initial vision of the risen Christ where John commission or excuse me where Jesus commissions John to write and he does write and he writes the seven messages we talked about that the other night but starting in chapter 4 John has this vision of the throne room and i would call revelation 4 through 10 The call narrative, that is, it's the story of John's calling to be a prophet. The call narrative is an important part of Hebrew prophetic literature. In some of the literature, it's quite short, and the word of the Lord came to Obadiah and he said. But in the major prophets we call them, the prophets that had a lot to write, the story of their calling is quite um, elaborate. So Isaiah, it's in Isaiah chapter 6. It's a very familiar thing. It's the year that the king had died. He's, he was in the temple. He saw the Lord lifted up and his train filled the temple. That's an old praise and worship song. We could have Carolitas. And that. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Some of you are shaking your heads like you've heard it before. Yeah, so that's the story of Isaiah. Jeremiah, very interesting call narrative in Jeremiah. He's called in chapter 1 and Jeremiah starts to be a prophet but he runs into some hard times and he has some hard words to say and he's not very well, well received and so he kind of chills. Like it's, although it's almost like, well, maybe I'll be bivocational or maybe I'll just take a break from prophecy. I'm not doing so good. But then in Jeremiah 15, you get this second story of a calling. It's like, hey, Jeremiah, don't forget. I called you to be a prophet. And Jeremiah 15, so there's two call narratives in Jeremiah, chapter 1 and chapter 15. Ezekiel, amongst the Hebrew prophets, has the most extended call narrative. It's three chapters, Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3. And that's the one that seems to be most similar to John's. Um, If we're comparing Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3 to John, say, 4 through 10, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, there's a lot of similarities. So, Ezekiel has a vision. John has a vision. Ezekiel sees a throne room. John sees a throne room. Ezekiel's throne is surrounded by four living creatures. John's throne is surrounded by four living creatures. And these are the only two biblical writers that talk about the living creatures, John and Ezekiel. Both thrones are encircled with a rainbow. Uh, Both prophets um, are given a scroll. Um, and there's both scrolls are written on front and on back and then here here lies the first difference Ezekiel's scroll is open he has access to it and he is told to eat it which is simply a metaphor for reading and he says it's sweet as honey in my mouth but the words were hard and then he's told to prophesy John's scroll is sealed, therefore he can't read it. And that's, that's the first kind of differentiation between the two call narratives. So if we uh, follow John, while his scroll is sealed, he's, he's told, we talked about this last week, uh, he's told that the line of Judah can open it, that he turns and sees the lamb. Then the lamb takes the scroll. So watch, watch this. We had our four people up here. Uh, In chapter 4, the scroll, the word of the Lord, is in the hand of God, the Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come, sitting on the throne. But it's sealed, so John can't have access to it. But the Lamb, we're told, can break the seals and open the scroll. So the scroll is handed from Marissa, (laughs) from God the Father, to Jim, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And when the Lamb of God receives the scroll, first they kind of stop for a worship service, some singing and prophesying and stuff. And then the Lamb, Jim, proceeds to open the seals. So we open one, two, three, four, five, six in fairly rapid succession. And then we get the pause, the interlude that we talked about last week, the 144,000, the great multitude. Then in chapter eight, finally, long awaited, we open up the seventh seal. However, we don't get immediate access to the scroll. You think once the seven seals open, we can open the scroll. But like all those other seals, the seal openings is accompanied by some kind of judgment on the earth. So like seal one, two, three, and four were a rider and a horse. And it's either conquest or war, or economic disaster or disease and death. And then the martyrdom and then, you know, the melting of the sun or whatever the apocalypse sounds like. We open up the seventh seal and lo and behold, there are seven angels, each with a trumpet and a trumpet blast that will come. And the trumpet blast will also result in a judgment. So we thought we had to wait before and now we have to wait again. So the seventh seal is broken open and with it comes the seven angels of Revelation each with a trumpet and each getting ready to blast their trumpet. So in chapter 8 verse 5 through the end of chapter 9 we get in fairly rapid succession the trumpet blasting. Is that the right word? Blaring? Tooting? No, not tooting. That's not strong enough for what's going on. The, The trumpet blasting of the angels. So you get you know, trumpet, angel one, trumpet one, dun, 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 and there's a, a judgment on part of the created order, and then the second angel, another judgment, a third angel, another judgment, fourth angel, another judgment, fifth angel, another judgment, a little bit longer, sixth angel, another judgment. So much like the seals, we were told were seven, and they come in rapid succession, but there's a pause between the penult and the ultima, between the next to last and last seal, there's a pause between the next to last and last trumpet. We get a story inserted between them. So the story that's inserted between the sixth and seventh seal is the story of the 144,000 and the great multitude, which we looked at last week. The story that's inserted between the sixth and seventh trumpet is our story tonight, chapters 10 and 11. So, we've had all these trumpet blasts. The end of chapter 9, the sixth trumpet, next to last, it's kind of negative. It says in a little summary statement, verses like uh, 20 and 21, it says all of those who did not die in these judgments, these trumpet judgments, uh, basically went back to their sinful lifestyles. Very disappointing. Judgment apparently does not have lasting effect on people's behaviors. So I think by way of analogy of um, 9-11, 2001, we were kind of surprised and shocked at the attacks in New York and in DC and at the other plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And our churches just filled up in the weeks to come. The the seats were full. The parking lots were full. Everybody seemed concerned. Everybody was ready to pray. The the hardship of the kind of collective trauma um, brought out a certain amount of religious devotion or interest, what have you. But given some time, three months, six months, nine months, all of a sudden, not so hard to find a parking spot. In the, at the church, not so hard to find a seat in the sanctuary. Whatever, whoever hadn't died in the disasters seemed to go back to their old ways. I would say it's fairly similar. Now comes this story. It's the story we find in chapter 10 and 11. And an angel, this would be Mikkel, comes down from heaven in our chain of revelation and gives John a scroll. It's opened. And now the story picks back up with Ezekiel. So when, when uh, Ezekiel had an open scroll, he's told to eat it. John now has an open scroll and he's told to eat it. Ezekiel said, the scroll is sweet as honey in my mouth. John says, the scroll is sweet as honey in his mouth. Ezekiel said, though, but the words were hard. Um, John even sticks stronger with his metaphor of eating. And it says, but it made my stomach bitter. Kind of sounds like Daniel. You should read sometime the last verse of Daniel 7 and the last verse of Daniel 8. After Daniel's had these visions and dreams, he's like, whoa, <laughs> my face grew pale and I had to lay down for three days or <laughs> I felt sick and about to faint. Um, The encounter with God is not something that our bodies always um, react well to. It's overwhelming. Sometimes you'll see it, people will weep or um, people will shout or people will faint or people will experience God in kind of dramatic ways. So um, the story then, if we start in chapter 4, the word of the Lord the revelation of Jesus Christ starts in the hand of God, right, chapter 4, just like it said in Revelation 1. It is given to the Lamb, chapter 5. Then the story of the Lamb breaking open the seals takes up 6, 7, 8, and 9. All of that has to do with the seal openings. Um, Initially, you know, seals 1 through 7, and that includes the interlude, but then seal 7, Uh, introduces the eight trumpets, or excuse me, the seven trumpets, and you get one through six. And now we've got this interlude that an angel, I believe it's the angel of the Lord, delivers the scroll, and I believe it's the scroll that had been sealed. Like in the the storyline, right? There was a scroll that was sealed. Those seals are now opened. Now an angel's delivering a scroll to John to which he eats, reads... And then he's told to prophesy again. I think he's told to prophesy again because he's already prophesied once, right? That was the commissioning. The seven stars in his right hand. He lays his right hand on to John. He says, I want you to write. And John does write. That's John prophesying from his initial vision. Now, this is the second time John was in the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 2. He has the vision of the throne room. This whole revelation of Jesus Christ gets passed from hand to hand. We get a kind of a lengthy story of judgment along with the seal breaking and trumpet blowing. But now the angel of the Lord is delivering a scroll, lo and behold, to John. He eats it and he's told to prophesy again. What that means is, is that at the very least, what John says then in Revelation 11 is the contents of the scroll that he has eaten in Revelation 10. And if I'm right, it is somehow the contents of the scroll that had been sealed that we first was introduced in 4 and 5, and then we saw the seal openings in 6 and 8. That's pretty exciting. So I want to say just one comment about the metaphor of, of eating eating the scroll and how that represents reading. We actually use a fairly similar metaphor in English. If I told my students, I want you to uh, consume your notes before the exam, that doesn't mean that they should roll their notes up and eat them or they should put them on a thumb drive and you know, try and swallow it. right? Or if I told them, I really want you to digest this book before you write the book report. The digesting of the book, again, is not a physical digesting. It means, it's, but it is an internalization of it. I want you to read it. I want you to put it on the inside of you. I want you to know it well. So the word of the Lord is coming to Ezekiel through this metaphor of a scroll that he then knows well and is able to deliver. So it's, it's both sweet and hard. It's sweet in that it is sweet to get the revelation of God. There's, there's no preacher, there's no prophet, there's no teacher of, of religion who, who believes in God that doesn't want to be inspired, that doesn't want to have not just something to say that they can figure out, but something that they feel like God has given them to say. All right, that's a sweet thing. It's hard, I think, in Ezekiel's case because what he has to say includes not just positive things but kind of negative things the coming of God is going to be um, is going to bring judgment and and judgment is not always easy to take Um, there's going to be it's going to be good in the end but before we get to the end we're going to suffer some (laughs) John's message is much the same right it's sweet as honey in his mouth finally right Way back in chapter 4, he's weeping because he doesn't have access to the scroll. Now, finally, the scroll's been delivered to him and it tastes sweet as honey. Just like his exemplar, Ezekiel. But it makes his stomach bitter because what he has to say is not, not super duper. Not, 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 not so sweet, not so great. So, you should be excited. As we come to chapter 11, John is now prophesying to us. We get this little prophetic parable in in chapter 11 verses 1 through 14 and what he says is what he read that's that's the idea of how this works he's delivered a scroll a scroll is delivered to him he eats it, he's told to prophesy well what's he going to say? he's going to say that which he just received, that which he just read, he's now going to share with us so in some way Chapter 11 is the contents of the scroll, or a summary of it. And I believe it is uh, literally the summary of the scroll, the one that had been sealed and is now opened. So now, here we go. You excited? Ready to find out what it says? Me too. It's like a secret. So this is what John says. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This is Revelation chapter 11. But not to measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone wants to harm them, uh, must be killed in this manner. They have the authority to shut the sky so that it may not rain during the days of their prophesying. And they have the authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the bottomless pit. The beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the great street that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud where their enemies watched. At that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven the second woe is past; the third woe is coming and then in verse 15, and the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, this is the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, literally the trumpet of the Lord, the trumpet that kind of, you've heard about all your life and then the trumpet blows and then comes this is that trumpet that's what comes next that's also kind of exciting, but let's back up first so the the story uh, seems to be a bit of a conglomeration. There's this story of the measuring of the temple and a story of the kind of prophesying of the witnesses, but they really do go together. So um, the temple of God in Revelation, in fact, in the New Testament, without fail, well, not without fail. <clears throat> there was the, the physical temple that was in Jerusalem, right? Solomon had built one, but Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. Zerubbabel rebuilt one. We call it the second temple. And it had somewhat of a spotty history. It got desecrated by uh, a guy named Antiochus, but it got rededicated by a guy named Judas. That rededication is called Hanukkah. It gets this major uh, remodeling done by Herod the Great. And it's that remodeled version that Jesus would have been um, dedicated at when he was a baby in his circumcision. It was that same remodeled one that he would have visited as a 12-year-old. You know that story from Luke? And it's the same one that that he would have you know, flipped the tables over in, right? So there's only been two temples, two Jewish temples ever. And they only existed one at a time. So the first temple, Solomon's, And then the second temple, which had that longer history. But that temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And in the New Testament, the language that gets picked up then is the temple of God is now the people of God. So sometimes we might use the word temple in the plural, like temples. But no self-respecting Jew, or for that matter, early Christian, ever used the word temple in the plural. There was only one temple right, the house of God. And it gets interpreted by Paul, and it gets interpreted by Peter, and I believe it also gets interpreted by John, I'll make that case later, as the people of the Lord. So, in Paul, he says, um, do you all not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Um, Like, he can talk about our bodies being members of Christ, but he never talks about our, our bodies being temples of the Spirit. As to say, you are a temple of the Spirit, and you are a temple of the Spirit, and you are a temple of the Spirit. The idea of multiple temples is not within Paul's thought world. So you, you are members, your bodies are members of the body, singular, of Christ. They're not multiple bodies of Christ. There's just one body that we all are part of. And there's just only one temple for the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a little hard to tell when reading, this is in 1 Corinthians 6, it's a little hard to tell when reading the English because we don't differentiate between a singular you and a plural you. And sometimes our translations cheat a little bit and, and they'll, they'll say bodies when the actual Greek word is singular, body. Um, but to, to use a Southern colloquialism, Uh, Paul says did all y'all not know that y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit meaning as we come together the spirit dwells in us and among us that we form. Peter says you are living stones so we are all these living stones but stones of what? Stones that make up the temple of the spirit It's this beautiful collective image. So the the word here for for temple is that same word, naas. It's not the word heeron, which is the big temple complex, but the sanctuary. And this idea of measuring, interestingly enough, is very similar to the idea of sealing back in the previous interlude that we looked at last week. It's this idea of protection. To measure it is to know how much you have. So that you can keep count and hold on to. Like if it's, a, it's like taking an account of. So to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Um, that's a very kind of internal concept. The altar here is not the altar of sacrifice that stood outside the sanctuary, it's the altar of incense that stood inside the sanctuary. So back in seal number five, when it says the martyrs are crying out from under the altar, again, you might think, oh, martyrs, maybe that altar is the sacrifice. But there is no sense that if even if you give your life for Christ, that that saves you. The only way you are saved is through Jesus giving his life. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Not they've washed their robes and made them white because they were martyrs and that saved them. So, and then later, that protest of the martyrs from under the altar is described as prayers mingling with the incense going up before God. That's chapter 8. Um, so definitely the martyrs and their prayers are the altar of incense this altar that they're worshiping at, I think, is also this altar of incense. It's this idea that God, God is in the ultimate things of life. We are completely protected. You're not, you're not going to lose your soul. You're not going to lose eternity. You're not going to lose your life with God. God is protecting you. However, on the outside, not so good. On the outside of the temple, leave that out. That doesn't get measured. For it's given over to the nations, and they're trampled for 42 months. Um, so, outside, where is the altar of sacrifice? And outside that, where is there the city? It's destroyed. And, and literally, in the history of Judaism, it did get destroyed, right? All of that got laid waste. And it's an interesting, we'll come back to this concept of 42 months um, either tonight or maybe next week. Um, but forty-two months adds up to uh, three and a half years, which interestingly, in verse three, it then says, "And I will grant my two witnesses authority." Now, before we go on, what what do witnesses do? This is not a trick question. They testify, right? Witnesses witness. Witness give testimony. So if we're following the story very slowly, very carefully, and we might say, and my I grant my two witnesses authority to, you might expect them to say, testify, but it doesn't say that. It says, I grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy, which I think is not insignificant, and I'll tell you why in a minute. For 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. So what's interesting about these witnesses. Uh, testifying 1,260 days in a lunar calendar system is exactly 42 months like it's the same length of time so while um, our number of days in a solar calendar can fluctuate between 28 to 31 um, in a lunar calendar every month has exactly 30 days so 42 months times 30 equals 1,260 so how long will the outside get trampled? 42 months. How long will the witnesses prophesy? 42 months. But he uses a different number to describe it, which is really fascinating in terms of the numerology of um, Revelation, which we will look at closely next week. Now, these two witnesses then are further described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the earth. And we go on to hear more about them. Um, They can turn water to blood. They can shut up the sky so it won't rain. They can call down plagues from heaven. Now, who or what do these two witnesses refer to? The church has long since speculated. So the number of candidates that we have uh, makes it look like the Republican primary from the last year and a half. You had all these possibilities. Who's, who's, who's going to be the final candidate? So some have said that they obviously are Moses and Elijah because um, who in the biblical story is asso- which, which prophet is associated with the plagues? Moses. Which prophet and which, which is one of the plagues turned water into blood? Moses, right? So that's very Moses-ish, right? Mosaic. Ah, ah, ah. sorry. Um, the and then, do you know which prophet prayed and there was no rain for three years? Elijah, yeah. And then Moses and Elijah, they're like the they're like the New Testament's favorite prophets. Um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a transfiguration story. Where Jesus goes up on a mountain, he's transfigured, and there's these two witnesses. Not, not Matthew, Mark, not um, Peter, James, and John, but, but two kind of heavenly witnesses. And who are they? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Yeah, they, they are kind of the witnesses, right? So they're the witnesses of the transfiguration. And these witnesses do very Moses-ish things and very Elijah-ish things. So Moses and Elijah are candidates for the two witnesses. There are others, though, who have claimed that it's not Moses and Elijah, but rather Moses and Enoch. So Elijah gets bumped. So the the thought process goes something like this. In Genesis, it says that Enoch walked with the Lord and was not. So what happened to him? Did he get raptured? Does he have to kind of come back and die? Or does at least he have the possibility of being reincarnated uh, somehow and experiencing this witnessing time? Christian reincarnation? I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but there are Christians who have followed this line of thought. Um, and in Hebrews, there's this reference again, this in chapter 11 this long list of faithful witnesses and Enoch makes the list and there's this description of them there saying he didn't taste death so between he walked with the Lord and was not from Genesis and he didn't taste death from Hebrews people have said well maybe he is one of these witnesses who then gets reincarnated and then at the end of the story they both die and so there he is it's his death um couple of things just to say there to, to walk with the Lord and be not may very well be, be a euphemism for death <laughs> right he, he walked with the Lord and now he's no longer with us what does that mean like you've known people that walk with the Lord you use that term for their life yes or no yes, yes surely you say yes yeah you know me <laughs> You've known people that walk with the Lord. I walk with the Lord. You walk with the Lord, right? And now they're no longer with us. That doesn't necessarily mean somebody didn't die. And even even the Hebrews passage, it says he didn't taste death. What does that mean, he didn't taste it? Does it mean he didn't experience it? Because a a few lines down past that, in reference to that long line of faithful people, it says, and they all have died. Well, Enoch's on the list. And at the bottom it says, they all have died. That would include Enoch. Right, so um, Elijah, of course, also has kind of a, a rapture story, right? In the end of Elijah, you know that? We sing about it. Swing low, sweet chariot, Right, that's a song about Elijah being taken up in the whirlwind. Or a chariot to fire and all. And so that sounds like a rapture story. Interesting, Moses has a kind of quasi-rapture story, right? We don't get the death of Moses, or we get the death of Moses, but it's like the Lord took his body. Um, you know, what did he do with it? Where is it? So that's, that's why Moses, Enoch, and Elijah have been candidates. Now, we only got two witnesses, so we're getting a little rough to get three candidates. It doesn't help, though, that... Um, Others have said it's Paul and Peter. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Some have said, no, it's not just um, Paul or uh, Peter, but it actually is the Jews and the Gentiles, that those who witness to Jesus are these two big groups. Some have said, no, it's not these people it's the text that that scripture is the ultimate witness to Jesus. And the two represents the Old Testament and the New Testament. So amongst the, amongst the arguments over the years, we got Moses, Elijah, Enoch, uh, Paul and Peter, Old Testament, New Testament. But they're, they're, they're called olive trees. Two olive trees. Well, two olive trees is only used in two places in Scripture. Here in Revelation and in Zechariah chapter 4. And in Zechariah 4, the two olive trees, the two anointed ones, the kind of double Messiah, is Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, are called two olive trees which stand before the Lord of all the earth, which is almost exactly this language. So one of them is priestly, that's Joshua, and one of them is kingly, that's Zerubbabel. So we've got to put them on our list of candidates. Um, did, I, did I share in the Wednesday night group? Um, my, yeah, I did. My personal story, yeah. So there's, there's that, but you've already heard that. All right. Maybe you are gone that week. I'll have to share here. We'll have coffee or something. Um, so it's interesting um, Sometimes when we talk about Jesus We talk about Jesus kind of playing three primary roles A prophet, a priest, and a king And he's all of those He's definitely a prophet He speaks for God And he speaks both uh, c- consolation and judgment I mean he, is, he literally is the voice of God right? The word of the Lord Um, He's the prophet. We also talk about Jesus as king, right? Jesus' message is the kingdom of God is at hand. And who is the king? The Messiah? The Christ? Is Jesus. So he's the king. He's the prophet. But then also you hear this language, especially out of Hebrews, that that Jesus is our high priest, right? He's not like Aaron. He's like Melchizedek. He's above. He's beyond the system. He's prophet, priest, and king. Now, listen to what these two witnesses are. They are witnesses, yet they prophesy. So they're, so they're in the prophet category. But they're two olive trees. And if they're two olive trees in Jewish Hebraic literature, that means that they are both kingly, like Zerubbabel, and they are uh, priestly, like Joshua. So these, these two witnesses then are reflecting the... Um, the image of Christ and that they they function prophetically priestly and kingly so they are two olive trees that's a lot to say and they are two lampstands well John's already used the image of lampstand once before in this book and uncharacteristically of him he has told us what the lampstand represents. Like, Revelation is full of symbolism. There's, you know, a lion and a lamb and, and, and uh, scrolls and seals and trumpets and bowls and thunders and frogs and beasts and dragons. I mean, it's got it all. Symbol after symbol after symbol after symbol. A woman clothed in the sun. There's only three symbols in the entire book that John ever says, all right, this symbol stands for, and he tells us. So the dragon's one. There's a red dragon that John says, this is the devil, the one they call Satan. Hmm. Now, every time you see a dragon after that, what should you think? That it's Satan. Yeah, it's not, it's not brain surgery here. Once he's told us, hey, the dragon's Satan. And then later he says, and here's the dragon. Hmm, wonder who it is. No, it's Satan. The other two times is he says there's seven stars in his right hands. He says there, and these are the seven angels of the churches. That's that's one of the three that get described. The only other symbol he ever actually identifies is the lampstand. He says the lampstands are the churches. So we heard that back in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 11, when, we're, when John reuses the symbol of the lampstand, what are we to think? So, a lot of commentators, both from 1800 years ago through the Middle Ages, up and through the Reformation, and into the modern world, have understood the two witnesses not as individuals, whether Moses and Elijah or Moses and Enoch or Peter and Paul, or Joshua and Zerubbabel, but rather that this matrix or fabric that's coming together is to represent the church, that their are lampstands, that the church is anointed, that the church is called to testify about Jesus, that the testimony about Jesus by the church constitutes prophecy in the world. That that which has borne witness to Jesus like Moses and Elijah is now being carried forth through the church. And it's the church that now being spiritually anointed must now carry on this ministry. And it's the church that then will face the resistance of the beast. And then those who are in the church will die. So it says that when when they die, it's very interesting. It says our translation says their bodies lie in the street, but the original Greek says their plural body lies in the street. Very Pauline at that point. And then it says in the city And this, I love this. This is verse 8. The NRSV says is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt. Just curious, what translations do we have in the room? All right. You have an ESV. Do you bring a Bible? All right. So we have a New American, a message, an ESV. What you guys got? Take it. NIV? All right. Yeah. So what does the NIV... Uh, if we can share, NIV verse eight, the great city that is something called. But I'm looking for the for the um, adverb. Eleven eight, so mystically is from what translation? So the New American Standard translates it mystically. It's mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Figuratively is what translation? The NIV says figuratively. So mystically, figuratively. The message says spiritually. That's what the King James says spiritually as well. What? Fittingly. What translation? Life application. Life application says fittingly. The NRSV says prophetically. The ESV says symbolically. ASV says spiritually. The ASV says spiritually. Good news says symbolic. Good news says symbolic. We are all over the map on this one, aren't we? It must be a hard word to translate. It's actually a fairly common word in the New Testament. Pneumaticos. Um, Paul will talk about people who are soulish, right? Often we translate it people of the flesh. Um, and he said people of the spirit pneumatikos or pneumatikoi the plural yeah it's the word most statically translated spiritually but we can't quite figure out what that means the of says symbolic. symbolic yeah so we get symbolic figurative prophetic mystically there's one text that calls it allegorically fittingly we're all over the place I think um, if I were translating it, I would probably translate it spiritually, but with a capital S because I think the same spirit that has anointed them through the olive trees, right, the anointing is now giving us sight to see beyond the physical because we know, literally (laughs) what was the um, name of the city where Jesus died Historically, literally. Jesus died in what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right. But now, spiritually, mystically, figuratively, allegorically, we're talking about this, this kind of spiritual reality um, that where they died. And it says that their body could be seen. I heard one interpreter say that this prophecy could not have been fulfilled until after satellite TV, because only after satellite TV could the whole world see two people's bodies laying in the streets of one city. Um, yeah, I, I find that uncompelling. Uh, I I think if we follow the majority of interpreters in the church, that this represents um, the church. Then, if the church is here, there, and everywhere. When they die, when, when they get martyred, they're seen here, there, and everywhere. And what's interesting about how this little prophetic parable comes to an end, they die, but that's not the end of the story. Because in three and a half days, the spirit of life, I think the RSV said the breath of life, but it's it's the same word, pneuma, for spirit. The spirit of life breathes into them and they stand up on their feet. That's a resurrection story. And then there's a voice from heaven saying, come up here. That's an ascension or rapture story. And then those, um, and then what does it say in verse 13? At that moment, there was a great earthquake. Very apocalyptic. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 7, people were killed. What's interesting about that is that's the inverse of the remnant. So in Isaiah, how much gets saved? Just a tenth of the city, and the rest is destroyed. Here it's the opposite. Only a tenth is destroyed, and the rest is saved. In um, Elijah, how many people did God say they had? Like Elijah's like, I'm all alone. And God's like, stop complaining. You've got 7,000. But still, 7,000 was a, was a small part of the, of the nation. This flips that on its head where it's 7,000 that die. It's a tenth of the city that's destroyed. The majority don't. And what do they do? It says the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Such a different um, outcome to the outcome of just the judgment alone from the end of chapter 9. All those seals and all those trumpets escalating to this point in chapter 9 where it says everybody who didn't die just went back to their sin. The difference between what's going on in 9 and what's going on in 11 is 9 seems to be judgment and destruction by itself which doesn't seem to result in any kind of long-term difference. No one's giving God glory. In 11, you still have destruction, but it is now coupled with this faithful witness of the church, which seems to have this positive impact on the world. So once we've heard this little parable, we get the final trumpet, and it says... The seventh trumpet is blown, loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, We give thanks to you, the Lord God Almighty, who are and who were. For you you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come. And the time for judging the dead... And for rewarding the saints, the prophets and the saints, and all your servants, excuse me, the prophets and the saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth, which I think is very key. It doesn't say for destroying the earth, but destroying those who would destroy the earth. Earth might get beaten black and blue, but she seems to live through it. Then God's temple in heaven is opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen. Within his temple there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals, thunders, earthquake, and heavy hail. Boom, 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 boom. Fate to black. If Revelation ended at the end of chapter 11, what else do you need to know? The final trumpet's been blown. The kingdom that was in heaven has come to earth. The wicked have been judged. The righteous have been rewarded. And he has taken his great power and begun to reign. The end. So if in that interlude that we looked at last time, we saw the great multitude standing before the throne and worshiping him, like, that's a small picture of the end. You know, we call it a foreshadowing. This is a bigger foreshadowing. There's more to say, but this is a huge foreshadowing about how all this comes to an end. And it's very interesting that God has described, we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. It doesn't say, and who is to come. The King James includes it in there, but that's kind of a mistake on their part. It's based on a, on a fairly late Greek text. We think what happened was some of those scribes, they've been seeing uh, is and was and is to come over and over and over, and they got to one that just says is and was, and somebody's like, oops, they left off is to come. I can fix that, <laughs> and they add it in there. But that didn't happen till like a good 900 years after the text was written why would the one who is and was and is to come only be described as the one who is and was because this is the story of his coming yeah once you tell the story of his coming then he now is just the one who is and was he's no longer the one who is to come because he has come which is what this says it's the final trumpet and it says whatever Um, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah and he will reign forever and ever so, um, what happens after that? That's, a, that's an interesting thing. I'll just say this quick, and then i, I got a summary statement, and we'll open it up for conversation. Um, when you're speaking in public, and you, you have a lot to say, and let's say you have 30 minutes to say it. If, after 10 minutes, you have spoken through your notes... So, think, think if you're teaching, or you're giving a lecture, or you're preaching a sermon. You got these notes, you got 30 minutes to talk, right? 30 minute class period, we'll say, kind of a short class period, but imagine it, right? And you've taught through your lesson in 10 minutes. Then what do you do? Say, so Jen says you freak out a little. You improvise. You improvise. What do you Time time for questions, yeah? Some discuss amongst yourselves? You can't just dismiss them. Well, you, may, you can in college, actually, because they can go out and do their own thing before they go to the next class. But if you're in a public school system, there's an expectation that they're not going to be roaming the halls until the bell rings, right? So what John does um, is that he recaps. You get this kind of cosmic recapitulation. At the end of 11, he's already told us That in the end, God comes. Things are made right. The wicked are judged. The righteous are rewarded. So what do you do now? Chapter 12 backs up. Backs way up. And says, well, there is this sign in heaven. A big sign in the sky. Kind of like this. And he tells the story of a woman and this conflict that she had with a serpent, where the serpent wants to kill the woman's child. Does that sound like a story you know? Yeah, who's the woman? Eve. Eve, yeah. But before you know it, the woman's giving birth, but not to Cain or Abel, but to the one who will rule the world with a rod of iron, who is taken up into heaven. Do you know who that is? There's only, there's only one big character in the Bible who is going to rule the world and who also went up into heaven. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. So she sounds like Eve, but before you know it, she sounds like Mary. And then we're told that she was protected by God in the wilderness. Well, what group of people do you know was protected by God in the wilderness? Yeah, before you know it, it's, 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 like, a, it's like a morphing symbol. It's like a hologram. It's like those little baseball cards that we used to get when I was a kid. And he's like this, and then he's like this. He's like this. Right? Turn. So at one point, yeah, I, I know that. That's, that's Eve. Oh, Mary. Oh, Israel. <laughs> Mary, Eve, Israel. Mary, Eve. And the story gets retold. Literally, the story of the Bible gets retold from beginning to end. There's this conflict um, it's, it has to do with the dragon. The dragon empowers these beastly empires. The people resist. That's another lesson. We'll come back to that later. And eventually, it's like um, it's like a jumbotron at a at a sports event. Like if you go if you go to like a, a professional football game, you're in the stadium, you're watching them play on the field, and all of a sudden, you look up into the sky, and there's a great sign. Mm-hmm. Literally. Sign and it shows you a replay of, of what you've just watched on the field, and it can slow in different in slow motion and in different angles and different perspectives and kind of fill in the gaps, right? But eventually, you stop watching the sign and you turn your eyes back to the field. So, Revelation. Uh, 12, 13, 14, and 15 are kind of this jumbotron replay of the biblical narrative that eventually catches back up to where John is. And in chapter 16, he's back in his story telling about the final judgment. So, we back up though to the story of the measuring of the temple and the witnesses. If the witnesses are a symbol for the church then the very heart of John's message the content of the scroll that had been sealed and is now open resembles the gospel of Jesus Christ not unlike the book of Acts where the spirit had been on Jesus and Jesus moved the spirit is now poured out on the church so the church moves The church will speak differently. Well, the church is born, but it speaks this way and it acts this way. How does it speak and act? It speaks and acts like its ultimate exemplar, Jesus. So, what happened to Jesus? Jesus was anointed by the Spirit, Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. Jesus was resisted by the ultimate evil, Jesus died. Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. Jesus got resurrected. After Jesus got resurrected, he ascended into heaven. And then at the last trumpet, Jesus returns. Now, what about the church? What about us? What will we do as part of the body of Christ? We'll be anointed by the Spirit. We will prophesy. We will pray the roles of priests and kings. We will be resisted by evil. We all will die. Our death is not the end of the story. For like our Lord, we too will be resurrected. And when we are, we will ascend. And in the end, what will happen? We will return with God on earth. John's John's message is a message of empowerment, a message of um, spirit-empowered, spirit-anointed prophecy that the church is to bear witness to Jesus as resistance so that when we speak truth when we speak love when we speak grace when we speak mercy when we speak justice when we speak the things of the Lord of the gospel of the kingdom that is a judgment against the world and the way the world would do things It's a judgment against the beast whether the beast was Nero or Domitian or Pol Pot or Idi Amin or Slobodan Milosevic or Hitler Mussolini or Stalin or whoever whatever current iteration of the beast that is living some world leader that's ungodly the church has an opportunity right to bear witness to Jesus and thereby be the resistance in the world the prophetic voice in the world yeah that's a great question so I've thought a lot about that and so um, and not just me but others so out of the seven churches there were only two that there was only positive things said about Smyrna and Philadelphia so some have made it look like kind of like there's a lot of people who claim Jesus but only a few actually live for Jesus yeah that kind of argument and then they play that out later with the Bride of Christ. So you have the church, but then you have the bride. That kind of stair-stacked uh, ecclesiology bothers me. There's a lot of elitism in it. And don't get me wrong, I grew up in a church with a fair amount of elitism. Like we weren't, we weren't sure anybody else was saved. So uh, I had a grandmother who said she really liked Billy Graham, but she really wished he went all the way. What she meant by that was she wasn't sure Billy was Christian because he didn't speak in tongues. So I'm not saying that elitism is unique to my tradition. There are other traditions that are very elite, right? But we all suffer from that some, some. So that argument, which I've heard a lot, I don't find particularly compelling. In Deuteronomy, interestingly enough, in order to have um, a legal witness, you need two. And so you do have two witnesses here. And the, and the fact that um, the text is pulling together a lot of Zechariah 3 and 4, uh, seven eyes, um, seven flames, spirit of the Lord, two olive trees, um, anointed before all the earth or sent out into all the earth there's a lot of stuff that's in Zechariah 3 and 4 that's also in Revelation and in particular they really seem to be converging here in chapter 11 um, two, two's the number there right? you have two olive trees and then John interestingly enough in all the Johannine literature the gospel, 1 John, Second John, 3 John there's no transfiguration story the closest thing we get to even hinting at a transfiguration story is Revelation 11. John says there's this anointing of these witnesses and they can shut up the sky and they can turn water to blood and call down plagues, which is very, very Moses-y and very, very Elijah-y, to use technical terms. Um, and that's, that is, it's the closest thing we get to a Johannine transfiguration. Uh, except that it's not a transfiguration, but it's, it's the closest thing we get to one. But then, I kind of love it in a way, if I'm right, that the lampstand should tell us that these, this is a symbol for the church, because then it's the church then that steps into those roles, right? Of, of we're, we're like Moses, right? We support the law. We're like Elijah. We prophesy. Except it's been dispersed to the group not just held into the singular leader. I think that's certainly part of it. You do have the Deuteronomy piece where two witnesses is what what you need for the truth. And I think that converges enough to, to make the case. Tribulation is something the church has always been going through. I mean, there are more people martyred 2012 than there were in almost any other year in in church history. So what what do you think tribulation is if it's not a bunch of people dying for the faith? Or they're put in prison? Or they're marginalized? In 2003, um, I had a friend, I might have told you this before, I I don't want to repeat myself, um, but his, he was, he'd come back from China. There's a 19 year old girl there. Have I told you? You've heard that story? No? She had started a church. The, the authorities found out it was against the law. So they were going to shame her as kind of an example for people who would do such things. So in their little village, they were going to force her to eat, um, yeah, dog, dog feces and drink urine. And she did. Um, she either recanted or, or do that. And she did it. And later she testified that she felt like God spoke to her as she did it and said, take and eat for this is your holy communion with me. Uh, there's still a church in that village. Right? It's that kind of sacrifice that people go through for the faith that grows the faith. I mean, the church has actually historically done much better in terms of growth during times of persecution than during times of of pleasantries. Because if we can live through the persecution, right, it's the blood of the martyrs that that fans the church. Um, Constantine's conversion is one of the worst things that ever happened for the church because the church became the establishment and it's lost its prophetic edge. The church after Constantine struggled because you could be a nominal Christian, right? Just in name only. Before that, you couldn't be a nominal Christian because either you had to live up to it or not. In Vietnam today, in the Assemblies of God, uh, the denomination that the college is associated with, it is very difficult to get credentialed to be a minister if you have not been arrested. Because if you've not been arrested, Have you matured enough and stood up publicly enough in the faith to deem a leadership role? I just find that fascinating. There's no expectation that I should have been arrested. In fact, if I'd been arrested, it it would have been harder for me to get the job. But there, it's not. So my colleague, his, his office is next to me has done a lot of work in Southeast Asia and has been arrested either two or three times, uh, twice in Vietnam, saying, we live in persecution, we live in trouble all the time. And the trouble that we live in um, is is a different kind of trouble, right? We don't live in the trouble of Smyrna and Philadelphia where it looks like somebody's going to get killed or somebody's going to get locked up. We live in, in the danger of Ephesus and Laodicea. Of assimilation, We forget our first love. We think it's more important to tell other people when they're right or wrong about the faith than it is to love Christ. So in Ephesus, they had some apologists that could tell the Nicolaitans that they were wrong theologically, to which Christ says, well, whether or not they're wrong theologically, that's one thing. I mean, they are wrong, he says, but that's not the most important thing for you. The most important thing for you is you've lost your first love. I think that's where we sit. We we think we we can see well, we're clothed and we're healthy. And sometimes we're blind, poor, and naked. So in a way I guess it does kind of play into the side of the elitism that we come with it of the two churches being the churches that we're living with. Them. Yeah, so for me again, um if I had to play it out, I do think And this is the way I understand prophecy working in general, whether it's Hebrew prophecy or later Jewish Christian prophecy. Prophecy can both have a very present reality. It can mean something in the moment. It can also mean something for the future. And ultimately, it can mean something in the end. So for example, in Isaiah, you'll get Isaiah 7. A young woman will give birth and you'll call him Emmanuel. I think in a very real sense that got fulfilled in Isaiah 8 when Isaiah's wife gave birth to their second son. And that the birth of the second son represented God's voice among them. She was a young woman, which is, it says young woman in the Hebrew, not virgin. She gave birth. It fulfilled their expectation. I think obviously, especially given Matthew and how he reads that text, that text is fulfilled in Jesus, right? But it doesn't mean that it didn't have meaning for them in a, in a real way, right? And so there are other texts, if I'm talking about Old Testament texts, that might have a present, a Christological about Jesus, and an eschatological in terms of the church. So if I'm reading Revelation, which I understand to be Christian prophecy, I think it has to mean something present for John and his readers. I think it, it also means something for us in the, in the part of the story we find ourselves in. But it doesn't mean that even that's the final fulfillment. That that I think this all does end at at some point with Jesus' return. There will be a church alive on planet Earth at that time. So in some ways, this then becomes them, right? The eschatological church, which may be us, but it may not be us, right? We may be the, the church on the way, so to speak but in some ways we're part of it, right? We're not separate from it, but maybe there is this sense in which there will be the final iteration of this cycle of events.